we've uh, crashed computers, we've uh, jobs, but Will and I are back. Dogs all the time now. <laughs> You're, yeah, Will's with dogs 24-7. Let's see, what did we lose in the last recording? Uh, can happen. Um, we love movies. Uh, let's see, what what happened to Can? Um, we got um, a new Leo Carax. Yeah. Oh yeah, There's the new Annette. Annette is here. Um, you know, it's the same the same thing as usual. Where I think it's really silly because people kept talking about, oh my god, I can't believe it's so divisive. But that's been with every one of his movies. You know, yep. And supposedly people were upset about the intense sexual content, but those people did not watch Polex, I guess. So. I mean, that's fair. That movie can't be seen anywhere. But yeah. But I think, um, as far as I know, it is now. I think Karox can proudly say, if he wants to, that it's the first musical with a musical number during a cunnilingus sequence. I, mean, I am excited to see what that, <laughs> what that means. I'm here for that. Courtney, do you have a take on that? Are you- this is the Sparks film. Yeah. So I'm most excited about Spark. <laughs> yeah. But cunnilingus is, is, is always good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it is dope, though, that Sparks, because I didn't know, and we talked about this last time, but I didn't know that they're the reason Annette happened. Because I guess when Karox used a spark song in Holy Motors, they freaked out because they loved his movies and they were honored. So they reached out to him and said, we should do something. And he said, I've always wanted to do a musical, but I can't write musicals. So they spent like the last seven years writing this thing. Quite a project, I think, but I'm very excited. Speaking of controversial movies coming out of Cannes, never saw this coming from Paul Verhoeven, but he uh, <laughs> has a movie called Benedetta that uh, apparently... Uh, has uh, everyone's talking about a, a medieval dildo scene oh, having wow. not seen the movie i i don't know but along with apparently the only news coming out of can it's either the cunnilingus scene or it's the medieval <laughs> dildo it's but, a horny time everyone's been yeah that's true <laughs> that's true I mean, but, I mean there were there were vaginas in the middle ages this is true. good point just nobody thought nobody thought of them as uh, as you know demanding demanding their own attention i think they still don't <laughs> but apparently leos carax does so um what else do we have there's the new joanna hog souvenir part de- are you is anyone excited about that i'm i mean i'm definitely gonna watch it <laughs> okay i really liked the souvenir <laughs> Okay. Everyone's excited about that one. Um, <laughs> what else we got? Um, I'm, very, I'm excited for, uh, I can't say her last name, but Julia did something who made Raw her new one about the, um, from what I understand about a woman who has sex with a car and gets pregnant. And that's where we start the movie. So again, everyone is horny um, <laughs> at Cannes this year, but I'm excited for that a debut movie that's at least at the very least super interesting and pretty well made. You know, I'm always curious if they can follow. Yeah. Seemingly because she won, I guess. She won. She won. Uh, yeah, I guess there's the Peach at Pong Rossica, the Memoria. Oh, with, with Tilda Swin. Tilda together. That's almost too good to be true. I feel like I've had a, yeah, yeah. a wake up from that. That's kind of too perfect. Like speaking of horny nuns though, the audacity of Warner Brothers to put the main nun character from the devils in the background of space jam 2 but still not release the fucking devils or let anyone screen it 
makes me makes me sweat. <laughs> we don't have Pepe, thankfully, because as yeah, we all know, Pepe was read as a <laughs> hilarious depiction of rape, not as a caricature of a Frenchman, but uh <laughs> Yeah, apparently he's scrubbed from the movie, but instead we have four main characters from Clockwork Orange. So <laughs> this all happens in Space Jam. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Um, and a little shout out personally from the set of Space Jam. Uh, a kid I went to high school with named Luke Matthias. Uh, we'll believe that <laughs> out. He is a background extra in Space Jam. He plays. Let's see here. He's uh, one of Mister Freeze's henchmen. And a little personal thing, this kid was great. He followed the cheerleaders around throughout and had only in his locker pictures of porn and wrestlers. Once through a party that my friends bullied him into doing uh, while his parents were out of town, where when we all woke up in the morning, kind of hung over, we saw him coming down the stairs with a spatula. And we were like, what is he doing? And he turns and the spatula has a big turd on it. And he was like, heh <laughs> It's cool, guys. Some people shit in my dad's shoes. It's fine. Anyway, I'm glad to see he finally got his due as a background extra in Space Jam, A New Legacy. So, A regular Cinderella story. Yeah. Very <laughs> proud. This remind, reminds me of this guy who was in film school with me. And I think during the time, and maybe this can lead us into our, or later we can touch back upon the pornography industry, but he was working as a PA on porn sets. And specifically he had a story where it was um, the women were asked to play cats and they were supposed to crawl around in a huge litter box and shit. And he was supposed to clean the litter box as a, as a PA. I, I feel like this is fake. <laughs> Anyways, but it really like, it, it sort of occupied everybody's, you know, it was a real persona he built. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they were literally shit. So he was the actual onset PA to clean up the excrement, or he was the like character in it cleaning up the excrement. Well, as I was as I was telling the story, I was thinking, wouldn't the kink really be about cleaning it up? Yeah. But I don't think that he was on camera. <laughs> but he now has a very successful OnlyFans where he just oops. Human yeah. So, yeah, another Cinderella story. Everyone's doing great. That's what we're learning. It makes my sound like the guy I went to high school with doing considerably better. So, <laughs> I'm, again, very happy for him. Um, I will say that I did. I did return to the movies. I did not watch everything on HBO Max. I did see Old over the last couple of days. Oh yeah, I'm jealous. I love, I love unhinged, crazy Shyamalan. Yeah. It's good. It made me think of, uh, yeah, kind of his weirder movies like The Hat, yeah. uh, uh, Lady in the Water. It's very much like Lady. I think Sam is De Palma, who doesn't make movies in reality, which we'll get into. But once Shyamalan quit trying to make movies in any semblance of reality, then I think they really took. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone in his movies don't do not talk like humans ever have. But I love that. <laughs> This one doesn't. What are, the, what are the politics of the like Ur Shyamalan fan? Mm, good question. Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, the old like the when he was first coming around, like Six Sense and Unbreakable Days, definitely. I think pretty conservative. Like it was very successful in that yeah. that demographic. But since he, uh, you know, 
started being a lot weirder. I'm honestly not sure. I see people fight about it a lot, but I don't know. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I imagine, yeah, that I mean, to be honest, it's probably like a lot of like the the annoying dude that I've been many times at a party who's the, you know, the wants to be the interesting film person. You know, everyone's talking about like Ozu movies or something. And they're like, yeah, but if you really want to see something interesting, check out Shyamalan's old. I assume that's the demographic. <laughs> that will be me when I return to parties. I will be shutting down every conversation about Yasujiro Ozu. I've had enough. <laughs> too quiet. Too many shots of cats by tea kettles. <laughs> but um, I think that I was that guy with body double. You're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> Boy, to be at a party where someone's ranting about body double. Yeah. I never thought we'd get there. <laughs> well, I guess we should, you know, dovetail into what we were going to talk about here. And, uh, uh, you know, Donaggio, whichever one you choose. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we're going to talk about um, Brian De Palma and sort of the, the, the landscape that surrounds Brian De Palma and his films critically accepted on like kind of a societal level of how we view him. Um, I know we're fans, but the press, critics, time has not been very kind to Mr. De Palma. In his movies, he's been charged with a lot of, I think, rather, you know, dubious and outright, you know, wrong claims. But we'll kind of jump into those today, and we'll just kind of talk about certain levels of misogyny, racial issues, um, him being a Hitchcock rip off um but we'll, we'll just kind of touch on a couple of key films today all right and we have a guest with us for this episode and we're very excited <laughs> i've got a good glowing intro for you <laughs> oh, no, oh yeah ready. oh get ready get ready <laughs> god okay uh today we're gonna welcome uh corny stevens who is such such credits as uh being in john moratugu's scum rock uh, one of my favorite film programmers ever for uh, Veggie Cloud in Los Angeles and other places as well. Um, a film writer and also recently has been making short films in the directing chair, but uh, transitioned to feature recently with the American Sector, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard about. Hopefully many of you have seen at this point as it rolls out in theaters. Welcome, Courtney. Sure. Thank you. <laughs> <That's so nice. laughs> Nice to be in your virtual presence. All right. And we're going to kick off when we, when I first emailed Courtney about this, talking about uh, De Palma and Body Double in particular, I will read the response that I got. (laughs) (laughs) Start off right. Uh, What you said was, (laughs) I want to appear under the auspices of having chosen Body Double as the film of all time I most wished that I had made in grad school. And you said, and then make me own that ridiculous claim. So let's do it. <laughs> well, I was trying to figure that out <laughs> when I rewatched it today. Um, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen it in <laughs> 15 years, maybe. So what had happened it was, so I went to the American Film Institute for, for graduate school. And I think the very first meeting of um, like our workshop groups, um, we were asked to, we, to go around and they like, and so my professor was Michael Urban, who is a screenwriter who um, is known for the film Saved uh, with Macaulay Culkin, um, oh. and is is wonderful and, and so funny. And he so he was our workshop you know leader. Um, and so I think I didn't only say body double. I think I, 
I was really into my own private Idaho things as well. But I did say body double and he trolled me for the next two years that I was in school about it. And not in front of people, <laughs> privately. And in like really, um, really kind of imaginative ways. Like I, so I think at a flea market, he came across some lobby cards for body double and he left them in my mailbox at school with a sticky note that said, from your fa- quote, favorite film. <laughs> Anyways, so I, I mean, I, I do, you know, kind of trying to project myself back into that time. I do have some thoughts of why, um, but maybe we can get into them slowly. But I mean, you know, maybe one of the big things that I was moving to LA and I think it was also a way of kind of willing myself into a kind of LA schmaltz that I was sort of was a way like a lens through which I could maybe not entirely have moved from New York where I um you know where I was coming from but was sort of experiencing it through as sort of funny um but then I stayed (laughs) for for you know a decade plus so uh so yeah I mean the 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 first thing about that film is of course it's the send-up of LA though it's you know I, I was thinking today and I don't, I haven't seen all of De Palma's films, so I can't say if this, you know, goes throughout, but I thought, the thing about Body Double is it's like, it's not as stupid as it seems, but it's not as smart as it thinks it is. <laughs> you know, they both at the same time. I would give the movie a little bit more credit in its intelligence. It's kind of an oblique movie. It's not like an extremely, there's not really a good entry point, I would say, for Body Double, that unless you're really trying to like talk to Palma, you have the context of his work, but the movie like body double, I mean, how many more, like how many films can we think of that are that like weirdly complex about so many issues happening in the first four years of the Reagan administration and also be this kind of like giddy, um, truly bizarre surrealist, LA through porno industries and just cheap horror movies. And then also be this kind of like theoretical text almost on like Hitchcock and his relation to Hitchcock. Um, I think it's, I think to start too, it's, uh, it's worth, we don't even need to necessarily climb into the early movies, but the fact that for a while, De Palma definitely did this switch at some point in his career. I think, I think with sisters um, where he did start doing the Hitchcock dive uh and climbing into that language but before that he was kind of a godard fanboy more so you know and i think it's interesting that he when he was in his godard fanboy phase outside of murderella mode the movie he made at sarah lawrence um outside of that one they're more straightforward comedies i would say um well except for obsession which i i like obsession but boy did i find it so dull this time (laughs) And this is from someone who loves De Palma. And I just, to me, that was like the thing that never gets name checked when talking about him as a a Hitchcock ripoff, but it's the most like glaring example that you could use for that because Dress to Kill is not a Hitchcock movie. It may have certain things that like signify it. It might be kind of a working through the plot mechanics of Psycho, but it's like Hitchcock would never shoot a movie like that. No. Obsession, on the other hand, does try to like go for this almost classical mise-en-scene, right? Would you agree? It's kind of like, it's less, it has less of that De Palma kinetic energy, I feel. And it seems like him trying to Hitchcock movie as opposed to like... Yeah, 
Because I normally don't think he does. My favorite defense of that movie ever was at a party. And this kid said that he was trying to make, uh, (laughs) said he was trying to make Torn Curtain. He said he wanted to make a bad Hitchcock movie. And so he climbed into the mind of Hitchcock making his worst movie, Torn Curtain, (laughs) to make Obsession. Which, you know, of course, I just, Calm down. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's yeah. Okay yeah. Chill, chill the fuck out. Made a bad movie, but <laughs> yeah, I think that is guilty of just truly being like a a bad Hitchcock ripoff in a lot of ways. Because the others, I don't think are. Yeah, once he hits dress to kill, you can't really. You know, it's kind of like no turning back. You know, like you're saying, De Palma. He starts with like greetings, hi mom. They're these kind of like, yeah, they're like the American Goddard in a way, you know, they're obsessed with things like the fallout of the Warren report and the JFK assassination. They're like, they have these incredible sequences of like, I mean, we'll get into it, but the be black baby scene is one of the, like, I mean, that scene will never be wiped from my mind. (laughs) One of my favorite things, especially the early movies is how mean he is to what we would like now call virtue signaling liberal, you know, like his favorite, his favorite target is, people who love to let everyone know how, you know, again, how we'd say it now, I guess, but how woke they are, how, you know, how progressive they are and all of that. And he's just so mean. And He I seems to hate him. hypocrisy, I think, more than he hates anything. Yeah. I think that's it. So, yeah, so we, we go through that kind of more radical period. We're up to the 70s. He's done Obsession. And I think it's the same year he makes uh, Carrie. Yeah. And so, I don't know. I'm sure everyone's heard of Carrie. And then the Fury, and then he starts, and then he gets into Dress to Kill, which brings us up to this kind of Hitchcock imitator thing. Oh, real quick, though, I want to, the first time I saw Carrie, um, I was at a, the girl I had a crush on in uh, first grade. She had a birthday party, and her parents were the kind who not only didn't care what their kids watched, but, like, enjoyed showing their kids fucked up things. And so at her birthday party, we watched uh, Leprechaun first. And I had never seen I'd never seen anything like harsher than Milo and Otis at this point, um, you know. And so we watched Leprechaun, and I'm already just like floored, but also very excited. Uh, and then they're like, and we put Carrie on, and the uh, you know the opening scene happens. That's the first time I saw a naked woman was the opening of Carrie. A lot of naked women. Yes, and I was deep. I was so uncomfortable. I was just so scared and uncomfortable because i knew at the time i also knew that god was mad at me and that i like wasn't supposed to see it because jesus says no um that yeah, must have really connected oh my god dude it's burned in and then like the you know the the moment happens and of course i didn't understand i obviously didn't know you know what a period was or anything anywhere near that i didn't know what bodies were <laughs> and so when that scene happens i freaked out and burst into tears and they had to call my mom to come get me <laughs> So my, my intro to De Palma was uh, quite intense and traumatizing, but I think as it should be. And I think that's why I've always been so drawn to it. <laughs> well, it sounds like you were going through what the character was going through. in that. Yeah, like, I feel for you, Carrie. I'm- well, that's a good scene. Let's talk about just that scene in particular, because I think that's kind of haunted his work. Do you know the scene we're talking about? I've never seen Carrie. We can say you did. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen, do you know that opening scene, like what happens in? Mm, I only know the prom blood scene. Okay, so it's, so the opening of the movie, like as the credits start, is the camera floating through a locker room. Um, 
And, you know, these girls have like finished gym class or whatever, and they're in the shower. And so that's what's happening during the credits. And we uh, get to Carrie and she is, of course, you know, like aggressively bullied. Um, But she gets her period in the shower. And so these girls like uh, someone sees, if I'm remembering correctly, someone sees like blood running down her leg and they start to yell and throw tampons at her. Um, but because she was raised in such an aggressively religious um, household with her mom, who thinks, you know, that getting a period is a filthy thing, she didn't know what it was. So she has no idea what's happening, why she's bleeding. And so, like, that's that's how the movie starts, is her being, you know, aggressively bullied. Oh, it's, like, it's like my girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that movie. That one was a childhood favorite. It didn't traumatize me as much as Carrie. <laughs> I don't know. I got pretty fucked up when he Macaulay Culkin gets stung by all those bees. I mean, I for was, sure. I was like, oh my god, I gotta avoid bees. <laughs> like, that sucks. This, this, a little, this Carrie scenario is a little bit like, like Jewish summer camp, um, mm-hmm. except kind of the opposite, where like, all, you know, everyone's getting their periods for the first time, you know, 12, 13, whatever. 14 um and but if you didn't use a tampon because you could sit out your sports competitions if you if you um but but then you would like you know basically like you know people would say like like shove fucking tampon in or or you know you're gonna ruin the swim match and we're gonna lose to camp oh my god Camp Blue Hill or whatever and and so like everybody was being forced to put in tampons even though they thought was taking their virginity and i mean not it was a similar uh mean girls situation. <laughs> i remember carrie, carrie you should watch carrie <laughs> <laughs> just going off of carrie i think like that opening scene though with like a bunch of like naked girls um I think that has caused a lot of controversy when people talk about him as a filmmaker. Personally, you can push back on this, Will, but I've always thought it was kind of a pretty necessary opening to that movie. One, because it puts the film into this kind of like mysterious, like like eroticism that only comes with like being an adolescent, first getting used to things like sex or anything, you know, bodies or whatever it puts it in this kind of overheated atmosphere of it. And I think to quote the Palmas, what he said, why he started it that way. He said he started it that way because if you see a movie that starts this way, you can expect anything to happen throughout the rest of the movie. And I thought that was an interesting way of putting it just because it starts you in this like very private world, at least for viewers of that time, it's the girl's locker room, but it's not like Porky's. It's, it is voyeuristic because that's a pretty key element to the Palma, but it's like, You know, a lot of the times the way he uses nudity is intentionally, you know, to to feel pornographic or to bring up pornography or whatever. And I don't think that's the case with Carrie. Um, Yeah. Like you said, still very voyeuristic for sure. But that's, you know, that's the goal of that opening scene, like you said. Um, And they're all meant to be in middle school, the girls? High school. That seems anatomically incorrect. Most people are getting their first period senior year. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you would understand Carrie's confusion. <laughs> no, but I think it's the Palma's confusion. <laughs> well, I mean, that might be. Though first, because I have I've never read the book. I'm gonna go with Stephen King's confusion. <laughs> Stephen King. He was confused. De Palma thought he wasn't confused and was like, "I'm gonna do this too." So it's a double confusion. 
and misunderstanding yeah. <laughs> on the part of these two. Another great thing about that scene is we get both Amy Irving and Nancy Allen in the scene together. Oh shit, that's right. They're both in that scene, yeah. Oh man, the time I met when I met Nancy Allen to was it was supposed to be to put on a big carry prom event screening fundraiser kind Ooh. of thing. It all ended up falling apart. <laughs> we don't need to get into that. But it was great because when we met with her, uh at the end of the meeting, she was like, before you guys ask. Yes, I can ask him if he will come. He won't, though, because he's just a fucking grump. And all he wants to do is whine about everything and sit in his fucking house. <laughs> I was like, well, all right. That sounds, that sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> but she said it also with like that, that wonderful kind of understanding and love that, you know, couples who have gone their separate ways but still have that affinity for each other that I always love. Well, she was going under a lot of pressure in the press around the time that she appeared in Blow because it seemed like a lot of people were like attacking De Palma, but eventually they started attacking Nancy Allen for being complicit in being in his movies. But, you know, that was what they, they went with there. And then, the, you know, apparently that was why they like divorced is they were, they just was constantly all this pressure on their relationship. It's kind of sad. Um, they were married on the set of 1941 though. I came across that fact today. <laughs> Oh, I I did want to mention one of the things as we get into like talking about De Palma um, and, you know, whether or not misogynist or whatever, I do think it's funny that, uh, you know, he's part of what they call the Brat Pack, you know, Scorsese and Coppola and George Lucas and Spielberg and all those boys and all this stuff. It's just always funny to me when reading these things about De Palma that he's one of one of the only, if not the only, in that group of filmmakers who regularly had very, very complicated, interesting female protagonists or antagonists in his movies. <laughs> and all the other boys pretty much never did and still don't. Do you think Melanie Griffith is, is complicated in this? I mean, would she be your version of that? Body Double is different. I would actually not put it in that category. I would say Dress to Kill and um, The Fury... Carrie, sister. Carrie and sisters um, all have that. And again, not all the time. I just think it's interesting that the rest of the Brat Pack boys were unscathed, I guess, in that realm. I would, yeah, he definitely has more women as main characters in his movies than I. And again, not probably to say all of them that. put the, combined. And like, De pa- I think De Palma's a mess, and it's part of why I love him because I do. And it's why, even in that initial email, Courtney, when I said, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> misogynist or not or definitely or both or neither or all of that and that's kind of how i feel about de palma and i think he knows that and again it's not to like let someone off the hook but i think that's what he's interested in is the way his own mind works which is definitely you know that of a bit of a perv to be sure and he has he said it before in interviews you know he like enjoys seeing in movies beautiful women being chased Right. Like, and he said that before, but I think he's interested in figuring out why and where that came from and why so many people do also. Speaking of that article you're talking about, that was the film comment article. Yeah. The Marcia Pally film comment article where I think the wording was even like takes diploma to task or something like that. A very problematic article on so many 
It's yeah, amazing. I mean, <laughs> one, he should never have said what he did and that like what you quoted because that haunted him, I think, for the rest of his career. He is being in that article pushed to come down on does he think pornography is good? Does he think that violence is good in a movie? And he's just being set up with all these polls of like yes or no that I think, you know, rightfully he's dodging each one yeah. and just trying to say like, well, I don't, I don't know. I think this is more complicated. Um, so yeah, that, that, that article, I think really kind of set the tone for what was going I on. It all. That's why he's, I think to this day, whether people in it realize it or not, who control the money, that's why he still can't <laughs> get a movie made. <laughs> if he'd never done that interview, I do wonder. Like Haddon's sisters had the black character who's so central to the plot actually been Sidney Poitier that he had tried to get. Would that have made the impact of that movie more? Because it's about a anonymous black body that goes missing that no one wants to talk about. Would the point have been made if it weren't a nameless actor, which I think goes to the point of the movie more, but would it be Sidney Poitier had played it? Would there have people understood that movie? If he didn't make Dress to Kill, how would that have, like, shaped? If he had made Flashdance, you know? And we have to talk about Dress to Kill before we can really get into Body Double, because we don't... That really sets up for why he makes Body Double. But Dress to Kill is... Um, it's kind of a reworking of Psycho, so automatically he was, like... Plot-wise, he was labeled as being a Hitchcock imitator, but that was only to back up charges of massage. This was 1980, so this is Reagan's first term. You have the Women Against Pornography group going around. You have everything going on in Britain at this time, which is, in terms of movies and censorship, is crazy. Um, what was it called? The Mies Report that uh, the Reagan administration did that was supposed to be against pornography as the societal ill that they attributed uh, the epidemic of rapes in Bosnia as a result of people watching porn. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's all this stuff going on at this time. So unfortunately, or fortunately, however you want to look at it for his career, he finds himself in the midst of all of this going on. And it's not like 1980 is the year of Friday the 13th. So what is it that we are getting with bashing on De Palma for, you know, they were accusing, I think um, Andrew Saris accused De Palma of literally reaching through the screen and stabbing Angie Dickens. Wow. Even though he goes at length praising Hitchcock and the shower scene, which he's riffing on in Dress to Kill. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's like, doesn't seem to be any like reckoning with the fact that like Hitchcock was kind of labeled a misogynist and maybe yeah, I would say actually was. I mean, even Godard understood that. So it does make me wonder, like, was there an avoidance to what De Palma was actually doing at that time? And he was just chosen to kind of fit this narrative of like, well, we have to crusade against these highfalutin, nasty. And also he has Angie Dickinson, who at that time was like known for being a television star in the show Police Woman. So I think like... That's right, yeah. So she was just like this kind of like good you know, very matriarchal character. And I'd really like to point out the uh, Andrew Saris is, uh, he had a, in the Village Voice, he had this big back and forth that he always had with Pauline Kale. And Pauline Kale was on the side of the Palma, but she really got that, like, you know, this is, I mean, she labeled it as kitsch as she always did with everything. But it started, you know, this war between Saris and her over Dress to Kill. And I love this line. I have to quote it because it's like, damn, bro, really showing what you're thinking there. He 
in his rebuttal to Kale's article of it, he refers to the Angie Dickinson character as a haughty bourgeois white bitch, but claims that De Palma is the one doing that, which is funny because she's a very sympathetic character in the movie. I think when her demise happens, it's very upsetting. So what, I don't know. Do you think that like with Dress to Kill, this was just a matter of what was going on in a national conversation? Because obviously people who are supposed to be as intelligent as Andrew Saris, they obviously can't see shit. <laughs> so like, what do you think it is? I think definitely lots of atmosphere, but the big thing, and again, whether or not it's always successful is debatable, of course, but De Palma's biggest, one of his biggest obsessions is force or attempting to force the viewer to think about how they're looking at things and how they're seeing things. And I think that's where you get Andrew Saris's comment and why that was revealed so clearly, because the movie clearly hit something, right? Like it struck a chord, I think, with him, uh, whether or not he realized it <laughs> and, you know, brought that out. And I think uh, at the time that reacted very intensely to De Palma, because I think he was forcing them to think about things more than they wanted to. And that's why something like Friday the 13th isn't getting called to task because it's, you know, it's not asking you to do anything. It's just watching some kids hook up with each other and then get killed and that's it. But De Palma was at the very least trying to, you know, make your brain also be involved as much as your lust when you're watching these movies. And they're not, they're not as straightforward as, you know, just a slasher or anything. And I think that's a big part of why that happened. Do you think he goes far enough? Cause I, I find it sometimes sort of a silly conversation to, talk about whether um, a movie directed by a man is, is a misogynistic movie. Like, does that, should that man make a film about 13 year old female chess prodigy and then they're not making misogynistic films or like <laughs> you make a film that, I mean, I, I guess I thought a lot about Lynch watching body double today and, you know, and, you know, feeling like, of course this movie is, you know, taking a lot from Vertigo and, and Rubindo, but I actually think structurally it's maybe most similar to Blue Velvet um, in terms of what's going on with um, with kind of wounded masculinity and, you know, creating a sort of non-real world in which to explore desire. Um, so in that sense, it, for me, these aren't, I don't think of myself as the same gender as the, in the sense that I think I'm female identifying, but I think also that this, or I think the women in this movie are like phallic projections. So, so, and, and that's okay. I think if there's insight. Um, and I think in Lynch, for example, there is insight. And so, you know, in the same way that I had, you know, some female students who watched Lost Highway in a class and they were really outraged by it. And, and they said, who walks around their house dressed like that? What woman does that is ridiculous. It's not true to life and it's not naturalistic. And I was like, I'm not sure that this film takes place in the world. <laughs> um, but, but, but also, you know, it's like, what is the insight into it's like a lot of men are misogynists. It's like nothing shocking. Um, and, and like, fine, the masculine or the, you know, the kind of multidimensionality of, of what goes on with quote unquote um, uh, emasculation, which is a big part of body double and a big part of vertigo and a big part of, I mean, a big part of blue velvet in, in just the sense of him being kind of young and, and not sort of there yet, or, you know, still developing maybe, but, um, 
so I guess, you know, it's, it's sort of, it just feels like the charge of, oh, these particular type of women need to be rendered is, is uh, for me. And, and I, you know, maybe I'm taking a position in saying this, but like, it's not necessary if I actually do think that insight is being made into the actual subject of the film, which is men. <laughs> and the subject of body double is, is. Well, and it's that we, I mean, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning. They're, they're not movies in reality. If we have to take the Hitchcock imitation thing any further, it's like, well, in many ways, they're kind of extrapolations of what Hitchcock was working towards. I mean, he had shit like the production code. So like he couldn't have done certain things. But I think the Palma um, almost takes that actual, like the, the idea of the male gaze, which we all hear about all the time. And he has that as a part of his movies, but he's able to almost like refine it and take it one step further into like, which I think is very central to a lot of his movies. And it certainly happens like is, yeah, it's that central question. Like, is it the film misogynist or are the characters misogynist? Like, are we following around a movie made by a misogynist or is the Craig Wasson character this kind of unwitting misogynist? I think that who he wants to indict is movie watchers, blockbuster movie watchers. I don't think that he's providing insight that helps to in, one to indict themselves in a, in a, it, or like their private life or something like that. And I think Lynch actually gets there. And I think that's, I think that's further <laughs> on a sort of spectrum in a sense. I mean, I think Lynch does both. Um, but it seems like De Palma is sort of, and maybe it's just, you know, a tonal thing. Like he stays in such a kind of cartoon reality that it, it I, I feel that he like, he, I don't think he has the chops to do certain things emotionally. And so it's like, it stops at a kind of a, a review of, yeah, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of things did. I'm talking only about body double right now, you know, but, um, but I don't think that it, I'm not sure that it provides me insight into the society I live in. It provides me insight into the, the movies that my society watches, imagining that I'm in 1984. Um, and so it's like sort of about media more than it is about lived life. What do you think? I mean, well, it could be about the society, society if we are taking media as the, the, like, the medium in which society gazes through like you know most of the time considering that he has a movie that it seems to be traversing through these really disreputable movie markets in hollywood you have the cheap horror movies you have the 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 mtv style music videos that you know somehow in his fevered brain becomes part of a porno so he has all these different industries that are outside of like the hollywood yeah, I, I would say that maybe he doesn't make it as apparent in Body Double, but I do think of that that societal gaze when I think of the, um, like you're saying, the cartoonish kind of like worldview that he perfectly shows us in Dress to Kill. Now there's a scene, the Michael Caine character, he's in the, towards the end of the movie, he's in the mental institution, he kills the nurse, and he's taking the nurse's outfit. He does that incredible split screen where he shows what on the left side the Michael Caine character is doing in this car- cartoonish, very Baba-esque expressionistic light. And then on the right side of the screen, he has the inmates situated like a row of theater goers, you know, watching everything that's taking place. Mm-hmm. 
And I think he even takes it further, this sort of like gaze of like how society looks at maybe a person, individual. Do you think, okay, I really, sorry, I like where this is going. Um, Courtney, when you're talking about, I guess like where he stopped short for you, right? Where you're talking about where Lynch succeeds. Um, do you think that that is possibly where his ego gets in the way? Like where he is? I think it's, I think it's where his concern with legibility gets in the way. Mm-hmm. It is sense. Like he can't actually just let him be free from... Like you're saying, the, the the media or these these framing devices or whatever it may be, like caught up in the, the language. I think he does ununderstandable, and so he wants. I think he wants his audience to comprehend what's happening, and I think even in Vertigo, there's there's more space for ambiguity of the film, you know. Um, but I think there's never there's never a scene that remains mysterious to us, even later. I mean, the only one in the film that we are it feels mysterious is when she throws away her new underwear. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, but that, you know, that's quickly rendered for us. But I, I mean, like the interior of people are not mysterious. I mean, we're not curious about the, our, you know, the lady we're following. I don't think I'm not particularly, maybe that's a problem that shouldn't be there. Uh, you know, maybe it's a failure in the part of the direction or, or the casting. I'm not sure. Um, but it's funny, I, you know, I, I was thinking a little bit about another film um, after hours uh, while watching this because I was thinking, I think they're the same year, no? Uh, 80 after hours, I think is right. Next year, I think. One year Pretty after. Close, yeah. Close. But I was thinking that they were kind of totally similar in, in a sort of like, like hyperbolic, <laughs> a sort of like silly, but intense, but real, but not, but whatever. But, um, but just thinking that so the character that, sorry, I forgot the actor's name, but in After Hours, you know, our sort of main everyman character. Griffin we Dunn. Need, yeah. yeah, Griffin Dunn. We need him to be, it was funny because I was, the only review I read of Body Dog was just kind of curious what was out there. I read Roger Ebert's review at the time, which was very positive. Um, and he, and he, <laughs> he said that the main character was so relatable. And I was like, really? Really? Um, <laughs> 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 You know, he's like, telling on himself there, but <laughs> but you know he was sort of I think he even used the word every man, um, you know, wandering through, and of course there's this you know while he's wandering through the mall and becoming the peeping tom, like of course we sort of we separate from him at some point during that I think and we start to understand that oh he has become the X right he's the perp or whatever, um, but it's so it's so important that we have that thought that it's, and, and, you know, the, the character himself is just sort of wide-eyed and like sort of zombie-like that we just don't get to have any other thoughts. It's like, we get it. And so we have that thought, which is a thought you have in Vertigo when she has now the actress, the brunette actress. Kim Novak. Yeah. When she's being dressed up as her sort of like blonde doppelganger. And we have that thought, but it's, um, but we're given space to think. And, and I just don't think that we are given that much space to think in body double. It's like, we're, we, he makes sure that we have every thought he wants us to have. And there's only about a dozen <laughs> or maybe half a dozen. I, um, I, I like what you're saying because I would agree. I'm going to put a little, little spin on it. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think like what he's doing and let, let's talk about that. The, the scene in the mall. So the tracking scene. Okay. Before we get into it, let me just position it this way. So like skipping over a lot of movies that he was 
that come between dress to kill and body. Death. All he's been hit with at this point in the press, even in positive press, is that he is nothing but a Hitchcock ripoff. That he just takes these things of Hitchcock, he cheapens them, he makes them kind of tawdry. A movie like Body Double is this rare example in the history of cinema. Because I don't think a lot of people like do this so on the on the you know surface, but like it's like the ultimate like fuck you response to about every article that's I think ever been written about him. But I think it was quoted with they were like, oh, you want me to do a shower scene? I'll do a big shower scene. Do you want me to do murder? I'll give you murder. You want sex? I'll give you sex. So this kind of like dehumanizing or this like alienation effect that you kind of are hinting at with our identification with the Craig Wasson character. Does it make for like a great character development narrative thing? No, it does not do that at all. But I think what it does do is if you want to look at it as strictly a reaction to the press and all the bad words that he, you know, pissed him off and all the studios that took final cut from him, you could do it that way. But it almost is like this, this kind of reworking, um, this kind of almost like essay, I feel like, about Vertigo and the Scotty and Madeline character and the Jimmy Stewart character. Now, obviously, we're going to identify with the Jimmy Stewart character, or people will, because it's Jimmy Stewart. What do you, I mean, he's, he's a sweet guy. You know, we love Jimmy Stewart. He's so, he, I mean, he was the everyman in Hollywood, but a, this guy who's this like nobody actor, this blank slate, becomes this kind of, I hasten to use this word, but this like Brechtian device, this alienating device to make you think a lot about Vertigo. And you think about the scenes where Scotty is stalking Madeline around. And yeah, he's following her to like flower shops and the museum and all these things. And, and, I, and I love Vertigo. It's a great movie. But what De Palma's doing now is he seems to be taking away this romanticized classical movie air. And now he's got your Jimmy Stewart character following around a woman just so he can like watch her take her panties off and he see he picks up her panty. I mean, he's, he's, he's such a weird character. Like, I don't think there's almost, it's, I almost like, I think you can identify with certain parts of like male desire, but I don't think it is a movie that makes it like, yeah, this like really complex and thorough character study. It's, it's, it, it does really want to like separate you. I think from that character and make you think about him a little bit more critically. I think that's super interesting. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm processing what you're saying. I mean, I think, yeah, it's almost like if you remove charm from the equation, you know, and you remove the sort of, you know, what is sort of highbrow and vertigo in terms of, you know, thinking about desire, it's like almost saying like, yeah, it is tawdry. <laughs> it's as tawdry as, as you think I am. And, um, and, you know, this is just sort of, this isn't, I mean, yeah, it's like he's sort of doing away with feminine mystique in, in some sense and just making it like really kind of, I don't know, corporeal and sort of simple minded and sort of, yeah, blank in a sense. Yeah. I, the, Roger Ebert thought that the actor has a wonderful smile, by the way. <laughs> That fucking killed me. I can't believe that's real. And I have to read that review. What? 
Well, it's Roger. funny because Roger Ebert, several years before that, was just so hellbent on taking down Scarface as this like <laughs> affront to movie making, <laughs> um, which is hilarious. Because I, I think the rewatching Scarface, I'm so like, I mean, especially Body Double and Scarface. I mean, they do really sum up the '80s in a very well. At least those first four years of the Reagan administration's first term a really angry, embittered view of the way our country was headed. And I don't think either, I don't, there's hardly a movie that I feel like takes, it has to sacrifice certain things about audience identification and general character development to make very um, poignant and an angry um, statement about the way capitalism had just completely run amok and was beginning to completely run amok after the death of the 70s. I mean, think about where De Palma is at this point. The whole, the, the great generation of the 70s and the Brat Pack and his buddies, they're all making movies. They're going to change the system. It turned out like the very first movie that signaled that, Easy Rider. It turned out that it's just people getting blown away and being like, yeah, we blew it. You know, they had a couple years, they had maybe a decade of being able to sort of mine the system. But the very people that created the system, Lucas, Spielberg, they kind of crashed the system with Star Wars Jaws. And what's left is this kind of like wispy aftermath of a utopian dream that these filmmakers had. And it's um, it's not hard to look at a movie like Scarface and at the end of the movie when you see Pacino just with all those screens and he's just shooting all that fucking yay up his nose that he's like, that's not hard to like imagine De Palma imagining Martin Scorsese in that role or Francis Ford Coppola at his Zoeatrope, you know, studios, you know, making one from the heart the same year. It's, they have this very like the revolution failed. And I, yeah, I think body double and, Scarface, sum that up. Do you think the entire point is is a sort of portrait of emptiness? For body double? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I think there is a, I think it is kind of a portrait of emptiness of the, of these male characters, these female characters that populate these very generic at this point tropes about movie making because you can't say that he's an, an Hitchcock imitator unless you say that everyone else is probably a Hitchcock imitator because along with D.W. Griffith, who else writes the grammatical rule book of like filmmaking other than Hitchcock? He's unavoid. You're going to unavoidably run into doing Hitchcock. And unless you're someone like Francois Truffaut, who I think makes really bad Hitchcock imitations, he's called someone who makes good work in the spirit of Hitchcock because it's all built on this nostalgia of Hitchcock. It's not built in anything like that might represent the building blocks of whatever his filmmaking was. And I think that goes for so many filmmakers. I mean, Martin Scorsese ribs from Hitchcock more than uh, almost as much as De Palma does. So you just have him in this really, I think, embittered place where he is right there. And the, when he comes to body double, because Every time he's tried to make a movie, I mean, the guy makes Blowout. No one sees that that was not maybe one of the greatest films ever made. But 
I don't know. I mean, it's like, how do you stay someone working in a system that is constantly throwing you out? And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I think that's where I come at with body double. It makes me think of like, well, well, we were talking recently about Blake Edwards, but it makes me think of SOB by Blake Edwards. This, the, these movies that are just the most disgusted. I fucking hate Hollywood. <laughs> I'm sick of it type of movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it, there's also like a, here you go. Like, you know, here's, here's, you know, you can have exactly what you want. And I actually thought, I mean, I did sort of think that the credit <laughs> scroll was sort of interesting um, as a choice, you know, because there's sort of no ending, you know, we kind of pull out on the yeah. and then we're in that sort of weird credit thing where I guess he's like redeemed because he's acting again, but, but it's also just about what bodies are and they're rendered like, you know, so entirely devoid of eroticism and it's kind of, you know, it's not even like pulling back the curtain. It's really sort of, it, it's really crunchy in there. You know, it's like this kind of claustrophobic scene, um, but claustrophobic in a different way. Um, and it's sort of, you know, honoring, not honoring anything really, <laughs> but it's, um, <laughs> it's uh, you know, treating, you know, just treating bodies as meat, but in this kind of, um, I don't know, sort of, you know, it's a different kind of indignity that actually feels like a sort of better scene than a lot of the film in, in a certain kind of way. I mean, it's sort of more interesting or it's like more specific somehow. Um, I want to bring up something weird. Sorry, this is probably going to derail the conversation, but did anybody else think that it was like a um, Sam Fuller white dog reference in the, in the end of this? It's the, it, that's the exact dog from white dog. Yeah. Way. He, yeah. he, uh, I, Brian De Palma is like a huge fan of White Dog. He like yeah. waxes poetically about the camera movements in the cage in that movie. Said he was so scared by that dog that he had to get that dog for it. <laughs> yep. Oh, that's crazy. I just yeah. thought it was, I didn't think it was a quick Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. that he thought of that though. E White Dog. It works. It works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and well, you know, he gives us the actual body double too at the end i mean it's like in a way it's kind of like it was what you've been waiting for here's the body double and uh i think a lot of that had to do with the outcry against dress to kill because when dress to kill came out you supposedly see angie dickinson naked at the beginning of the movie but it was a body double and so everyone was mad at him for showing this like this everyone's favorite police mom from television naked masturbating in a in a yeah in a shower and he's like yeah that was not her that was a body double so i'm gonna go to the bathroom i'll be right back oh we can do that oh yeah, oh, yeah we can do whatever we want there, there are no rules you can do anything whoa i thought we were like you know it's like the academy awards like live <laughs> nope not at all <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but uh, you're, you guys going back and forth <laughs> kind of highlighted for me exactly why I love De Palma so much. It was precisely that, the, the conversations that come from it um, and why I think all the labeling and all of the whatever is so boring. Because at the end of the day, what it comes down to is, you know, I think his stuff is a conversation starter at the very least. And that's the, you know, those are the... Yeah, I think I've talked enough, so... Uh... <laughs> I thought what you said was really interesting. I mean, it's it's maybe, like, 
I, it's funny because it's not as though anyone would mistake his films for earnest, but maybe <laughs> it's like a, another layer of not being in earnest. Um, mm-hmm. But then it's really nihilistic. Okay, you know, okay, it's nihilistic. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting though, when you get to something like Carlito's Way, which I think is like one of his f- like few earnest movies. Would you agree, Will? Like, I feel like- I might be the only earnest movie. Yeah, and it's all told through like flashbacks. So at the same time, it can't be entirely earnest because it's all through this kind of like a guy dying, talking about like things that he wanted to go right. So, but I don't know. I always think, I always call Carlito's Way my favorite. Yeah, it makes me cry every time at the end of that movie. So, but then again, so does Blowout. So I don't know. Yeah, do you think that's the one time he, he, uh, he fully lets it drop? Let's that wall drop. Let's the anger drop. Yeah, a little bit. Like there are moments in the other movies, but I think in Carlito's way, for whatever reason, whatever's happened, whatever, whatever pulled his guts to that story and his heart to that story, uh, his yeah. his shit kicker and his nihilism were no match for whatever he truly felt, you know, when wanting to make that movie. Because everything else, again, there's moments, but everything else he's able to. <laughs> Do, do you know do do that diploma thing but carlito oh, yeah you just it's kind of like i kind of think of carlito's way as harmony corinne's uh julian donkey boy i think that one outside of a couple scenes is the same thing mm-hmm. where uh you know the 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 traits that you would associate with harmony corinne usually are largely absent because that movie is about his uncle you know mm-hmm. um and truly is a loving tribute to a really, really sick, wild human being in the family that surrounded him. And I think Carlito's way is kind of the same way. Like it disarmed both of them, those two movies. <laughs> it's his most technically, I think, sound. And it's like, I mean, it just every scene. I mean, that's like, along with like Mission Impossible, that's where like they give the guy like, you can do whatever you want. Here's as much money as you want. Okay. And so I think Carlito's way is cool for that just because it's like, to me, it's the fruition of De Palma. So maybe that's why he's able to let these kind of like emotional underpinnings through because the gay old Carlito's way romance. And it just, I don't know, it isn't born totally of reality. I think like her character is sort of idealized, but that's only because it's coming through his memory as he's like dying, but it gets, it gets me every time. Like it really, I find that so poignantly moving. Um, I will say though, I, I would love to just mention this one thing about Carlito's Way. Um, apparently, uh, everyone's favorite lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, uh, tried to sue Brian De Palma because he felt that the Sean Penn character was supposed to be him. I love when people call themselves out accidentally on some <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well Dershowitz is the king of that he's still the guy it's like I was not with Jeffrey Epstein and they're like you don't you no one asks you just brought that up into a conversation and he's like well I can prove it it's like fine no one no one's asking um but oh wow and the other crazy thing of that dovetails to Palma with Dershowitz is um when I was coming across all the alliteration you just did. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, film comment had a, uh, I think it was either f- um, for dress to kill or for body double, but film comment did this double edition to like talk about one of those movies. 
And to talk about why the movie was problematic, they have an essay pinned by Alan Dershowitz. What? Yes. Oh, I haven't read it because I can't. What? About why he finds the movie pornographic and like uh, is going to warp the minds of people all over the country. Um, I'm going to download that essay as soon as we finish. Please <laughs> find that because I want to read it because. What? That's an incredible rebuttal. Like, oh, you're a misogynist, bro. So we got Alan Dershowitz on. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's jet sitting between Lolita Island and this, you know. It's just, that's, I mean, that was like crazy to come across that. that yeah. Dershowitz has popped up twice in the aura, in the orbit. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> but um, I think final closing thoughts I would like to just say to Courtney's point about to Palma and Lynch. I think that's a pretty apt comparison. And I think like, you know, Blue Velvet fell under the same charges that Body Double and Dress to Kill did. I mean, Roger Ebert famously said that he was disgusted what David Lynch did to Isabella Rossellini mm-hmm. and, um, and how sick it made him to watch that. And uh, in Femme Fatale. Isabella Rossellini was like, I love uh-huh. <laughs> oh my queen. He's like, I'm married to Martin Scorsese. Like, don't you even need to talk to me about this? Oh, but, I love uh, demanded they put that segment from Siskel and Ebert on the first uh, Blue Velvet DVD release. Yeah, <laughs> one way back. The 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 main special feature was you could watch Ebert sweating and freaking out. He's having a meltdown trying to like explain why that movie isn't isn't good. <laughs> Uh, you want to like calm him down (laughs) i want to give him a joint i'm like bro (laughs) just let me like go chill in the chill out tent like you're over you have to give him you have to give him hoppers you know oxygen Uh, loosened up a bit but also lynch was supposedly i mean lynch almost made an appearance in a in a brian de palma movie he was uh supposed to make a cameo in femme fatale really yeah in the scene have you seen femme fatale no there's a scene that takes place at the very beginning of the movie that takes place um, in the Cannes Film Festival. And uh, Sandrine Bonaire makes a little cameo as being part of this fake director's movie. But apparently Brian De Palma wanted and had booked David Lynch to be that director because he said, quote, Lynch and I dream the same, which is a pretty cool thing to say, honestly. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I feel the same way about Lynch, though, so maybe I'd dream the same as Brian DePaul's. <laughs> you might. You might. And good <laughs> Doesn't everybody feel that way about David Lynch? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still kind of interested in, you know, not to ask you to make a list, but what your kind of favorite favorites are from one to two. I think it's simpler. I think you can just say what to avoid. <laughs> yeah. Avoid, avoid obsession. Avoid bonfire the vanities and avoid watching yeah he did yeah <laughs> yeah this is very unfortunate That's, right that was not the first time pauline kale was like ah might have been wrong <laughs> pauline kale took back all of her nice praises to him it's pretty funny because she praised wise guys which is yep. pretty wild i think you would dig the early ones like i think i think you would find a lot fascinating in the like even even I mean Dionysus in '69 is just filming the play that they were doing, but even that I think you would I think you'd find a lot uh, mm. to unpack 
in those early ones. Hi, mom, and greetings, and you know. And the Fury is so fun. The Fury is like one of the funnest. Yeah, and Cassavetti's like having the most fun in a role ever. It's cool. Um, I guess we didn't even talk about raising Cain, but we don't really need to go into. Oh, that's okay. I will say for those listening who aren't aware, there is um, there is the movie Raising Cain, but on the Blu-rays, will who put out the Blu-rays for Raising Cain? Well, shout shout an arrow, arrow. but it, it it all came to be because of um, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, Raising Cain of De Palma stuff was one of the most famously that he was really sad about what was ultimately released, um, and this sweet obsessive nerd got his hands on the original screenplay i've heard it was called dad something originally i don't know but uh got his hands on the screenplay and was blown away and was like holy shit so he reordered the film recut it as the original screenplay because the theatrical cut is very linear and it sucks so it's kind of a terrible movie (laughs) uh but reordered it and eventually it got to brian de palma and he was so happy and lost his mind and was like, oh, my God, yes, that's what it was supposed to be. Reached out on behalf of this person to the studios uh, to get the negatives and restore it and all that shit. But, yeah, watch the watch the the recut. The theatrical is a piece of shit. It's pretty <laughs> cool to see how just a little editing can uh, completely change the crux of a movie when you yep. take it out of the John Lithgow character's perspective and put it in the Lolita Dabovich or however you say her name's character Um, because it opens the, because how else are you going to understand that this woman keeps waking up in dreams throughout the entirety of the movie and just can't get a wink of sleep. (laughs) It's Um, the the movie that if people are talking about how cool inception is, (laughs) well, if you want to see the movie that it will never admit it ripped off, it's dreamscape and, Raising Cane. <laughs> it is the ultimate dreamscape movie. That's that's for sure. For our listeners, as we said at the top, American Sector is playing, um, you know, lots of digital cinemas right now. Um, so you can rent it. I believe from the music box here in Chicago, you can still actually rent it currently. Oh, maybe so. It's going to be up on movie um, next month or this month in August. Oh, yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, everyone... Watch it there if you haven't seen it. Um, I'm not going to start talking about it because I'll be too much. But <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's absolutely incredible. Um, definitely my favorite movie of the year thus far. Uh, but what are what are your plans? What's coming next? Uh, well, I'm, I actually made another feature that, that's, that premiered this year, which is it's kind of this um, culmination of this long travelogue project. Um, and it's called Terra Femme, and it's composed entirely of amateur films shot by women who are traveling in the 30s and 40s so they're home movies um shot while traveling and it's a kind of film essay through kind of questions about the gays and female tourism and kind of dreams of other women's lives and things like that um so that's playing around um it'll be i don't think i can say this but i guess maybe i can uh, it'll be at uh at CIF at Camden International Film Festival, and that'll be streaming nationwide. And then also at Rockaway, I'll be doing it live in New York. Um, and I think at Nasals in, in October, also in New York. Other than that, I'm mostly uh, just going to the beach and, and chilling. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, that sounds incredible. I can't wait. 
Right. Yeah. I just got back from Lala, so I'm a little exhausted. <laughs> but you know, what's you really The Lollapalooza festival. Fuck that. Wait. That still exists. Oh my god! I thought the same. I also <laughs> and I stood up. To, I didn't know. I had no idea it was still a thing, and it was a big it thing. It tours. It tours. No, I it just plays Chicago. It used to be in like uh, North Carolina, but now it's here for whatever reason. But it was cool to see all the hot artists of our time. So <laughs> was cool there. is that. <laughs> uh let me look um <laughs> i hope you yeah. were center for post malone i know who's your favorite person oh, i don't, I don't know anything i'm like i did see that uh one dude got kicked off for homophobic slurs oh um he said he said uh oh the rapper the baby got kicked out of the festival because he said <laughs> Oh my god. He said, throw it up for anyone who came here and didn't like uh pass AIDS along. Wow. See, Wallapalooza uh, really is stuck in the nineties. Yeah, they they really are. Oh, he says if you didn't show up today with HIV AIDS, any of them sexually transmitted disease, um, put your cell phone light up. <laughs> what? What? That's even worse than the palma. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the title, that's the title of the episode debate yeah. is even worse than De Palma oh that's pretty that, good that's some pretty gauche that's some pretty gauche good <laughs> what do they call it like what do they call it when you try to get the crowd going Hi- hyping hype man that's, a, that's an incredible hype way to hype people right there yeah <laughs> it's funny because then the article goes on to be like mm, but it's okay because Young Thug filled in and it's like, who the fuck also is the baby? Why was Young Thug not in? I know Young Thug. Who the fuck's the baby? Um, Fred Durst did show off a new look though during Limp Biscuits uh, set. Limp Biscuit played Jesus Christ. Uh, he looks good now. He's got long hair, kind of a handlebar. <laughs> I can't um, tell if you're being genuine. <laughs> uh, I'm genuine in that he looks better than well. He looks like, uh, what would I, like he would be following someone around taking their panties at a mall. He looks a little creepy right now. He looks like, like that guy that you went to, to school with. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes. Herb's Grease Jam too. This poor guy. I'm not going to bleep it, even though you wanted me to. I'm going to leave it on there. He's got well, hey, an, an actor. It's chill. He's, he's got an incredible, you live in the same uh, city as him. Courtney, so you can hit him up. Uh, Luke Mathias. <laughs> no way this actor lives in LA. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. He's in LA. Um, <laughs> he's, he, was, he was a background actor in lots of movies. So He's one of a kind in the City of Angels. He really is. And <laughs> I'm just glad life has finally circled around on him. So. Oh, oh wait, I, I, can I plug something? I forgot I do have something oh, to plug. plug but I, I, I should plug. Um, is that I that laugh as I do? I acted in a film, and that film is out in the world, and uh, and it premiered at Fid Marseille, and it's called Topology of Sirens, and it's um, hopefully will premiere in the U.S. soon. Uh, Ooh, yay! Wow, cool. It's the first feature by um, a young man named Jonathan Davies, and um, from Corn from the band Corn. No. <laughs> 
different different jobs. <laughs> um, but it is set in a music world, but it's like the music world of ambient music and a kind of fantasy LA. So um, so actually Chicago musician Matches is in it. Um, yeah. And Sarah Devachi, um, they play big roles. Um, and there's a lot of music in the film and a lot of kind of interesting environmental sound stuff. The whole film is about um, a character trying to find out about sound mysteries. So yeah. you're going so hard. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> well, Will, should we, should we, should we end this? Sign it off. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again, truly. <clears throat> I hope it was enjoyable for you. <laughs> yes, you opened up this world. <laughs> Podcasting about movies. <laughs> yeah. This is the first movie podcast I ever created, so 